Hello, and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This shows a deep dive into strategies, founding stories, and more behind Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Brandon Wazelnuck. Brandon is the co-founder of Codex. Codex is an IDE extension that allows any engineer to attach comments, questions, notes, or any kind of content to specific lines of code. In this episode, we discuss Brandon's first venture, Tattoo Hero, Brandon's extensive product background, and the unique way he and his team created Codex. Please enjoy my conversation with Brandon Wazelnuck. Brandon, I'd really like to start with, I was looking at your background and I stumbled upon Tattoo Hero, yeah. uh, an open table for tattoo shops. I I think that's just so interesting and then where you are now with Codex, but what was that experience like? Was that one of your first experiences in being a founder and what did you learn from it? Yeah, uh, really good question. <laughs> so the short story is it uh, it was my first venture-backed company. Um, it actually started as a, there used to be this, it might, no, I think it was acquired by Techstars and they stopped it, but there used to be a group called the Kaufman Foundation. I think they still exist. It was like a charitable organization that would host these things called Startup Weekend. Uh, so it was very much an in-person event. The many were run for a long time, but you like paid, uh, it was like a hundred bucks. And the whole point was you showed up to this space about whatever, you know, 50 to like a hundred people would be there and they'd either say, I'm an engineer, I'm a business person, or I'm a designer. And then you do like this pitch fire thing where people be like, you know, in this case, this is where Tattoo Hero came from. My, my co-founder, who was the person covered in tattoos before I get asked that question, I have one that's here, <laughs> but he had many and he just went up and he's like, every day people come and ask me like, Steve, where'd you get this tattoo? And I don't have a good answer for them because they say, where should I get mine? And he's like, I want to make a website that answers this question. Like, where do you get your first tattoo? And I was like, that sounds fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, that's really where it came from. Um, but yeah, it was our first or my first venture backed company because we kind of messed with it for about a year as like a part-time thing. I was working at IBM at the time in the business intelligence and predictive analytics business unit, uh, which is now called just business analytics. Um, but basically we were working there messing with this thing on the side. And then we kind of grew the web traffic to like something pretty remarkable. We were getting like, like I think it was like 50,000 uniques after like a few months. And we were like, that's weird. Like, why is this working? And investors actually reached out to us, um, which it, it's the firm called Real Ventures based in Montreal, uh, but through their program called Founder Fuel, which is a YC, like a Y Combinator like program, but based in Montreal. Um, and we were like, yeah, let's do it. And it mainly came down to this decision for us, which was like, I was doing well in my career at IBM, uh, but getting a little bored with the large corporate sort of environment. And I was like, I never really did like a startup startup, like in tech. Uh, before that, my first company, I was 10 and I cleaned parking lots and dumpsters. So like to give you a sense of like, that's what I did. Uh, but this was like technology. I was like, I want to try that. Like, I want to. I want to try making a tech company. Let's do it. Uh, so we quit. We like took this investment. Uh, one of my mentors gave us like another angel check. So like all in the three co-founders, we like moved to Montreal and we had raised, I think it was like $65,000 Canadian. And then like we showed up, we get there. And I remember us sitting there like day one, I did like an operating plan. And I was like, 
we're going to go bankrupt in like three months. <laughs> like, what are we doing? <laughs> and then lo and behold, we ran Tattoo Hero for like four years. <laughs> so there's a lot of stories in there, but I'll stop there. I guess what, like, what were some key learnings? Like, you know, sounds like you've been an entrepreneur since you were 10 years old, but what were some things from Tattoo Hero that you've kind of carried with you and, you know, raising like, pretty much bootstrapping with that amount of money being raised. Like what were some things that have stick, stuck with you to this day? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is like pick a lane. Um, what I mean by that is like, are you bootstrapping? Are you doing venture route? Like, and then like whatever middle ground there is in between essentially, but basically how are you striving to like, move your business forward. And then when you pick which lane you want to be in and how you want to bring this product or, you know, co company to market, um, you know, fully invest in that. I think the biggest mistake we made, uh, well, biggest, there's, there's many, but one mistake was we just didn't really understand venture capital. Like we were just, you know, talented people like Min, one of my co-founders worked with me at IBM. Uh, and then Steve worked, uh, he was like a backend engineer at, uh, and it was called Ottawa Community Housing, but like a large distributed community housing system, but he ran the systems. And like, we just kind of were like, oh, we got some investors. Sure. Let's just take that money. And like, like I said, we get there, we like do an operating plan and we're like, what were we thinking? Like we immediately, like, I think my salary was like $18,000 a year for four years. Like I never made like, you know, obviously you're not in a startup to make like a bunch of money. Like you're just building things. But like, that was at a level where I was like begging friends for like ramen like, cause like you couldn't even pay rent. So it's like, I was like, that's not a great way to try to build a venture back startup. Like if we understood venture, I think, you know, by picking a lane, it's like, if I'm going to do venture, like build a venture thesis, build a venture ready company, like really drive towards that. I do believe Tattoo Hero had that in it. We ultimately started to morph more. We did raise more money later um, through other programs and stuff, but through its whole life cycle, it only ever raised uh, 385,000 uh, Canadian. So you know, we did hire as well. We grew teams, but everyone was always sorely underpaid on cash, uh, but paid well on equity, presuming it would ever be worth something. And, you know, those, those are sort of the challenges. Cause if you're going to bootstrap, you're ready for that experience. You make sure you have income streams, you, you do that thing. Uh, but with venture, it's like, we should have actually done a proper raise, had a proper plan and know what that runway was going to be to like hit which milestones, for example. Uh, which at that time we just didn't, we wanted to start a company. We were quite young. So <laughs> we did. And, and, and that's a great piece of advice there. And I guess what would have made tattoo hero venture ready compared to like the Avenue that you took, I guess, like what's that kind of maybe the one, two, three things that could have been different that made it more venture ready. Yeah. One, one big thing for us was, there's a lot of components to this, but we created a website that had this one kind of goal that we said earlier. So how do you find the right tattoo artist to get your first tattoo? And this is like, it's very hard because a lot of people look at, especially at this time, it was like 20, end of 2011, moving into 2012. There was like still a stigma around tattoos, but let's just say it was worse then. And so, you know, when people were like, well, I, I want to get a tattoo, they said it in like hushed voices. It was very weird. And like, they're like, they would like talk to their friends who had tattoos because they knew like it would be a safe conversation. So they wouldn't ask other people. Um, and the biggest thing that we like learned our unique insight was essentially people didn't realize that a tattoo artist is an artist first, which means they have an artistic style that they enjoy and they want to practice. 
And then, of course, they become tattoo artists because they like that medium for their art, among maybe other reasons. But like, it's really that. And so if you could find an artist that does artwork that you like, that you want on your body, you're going to get a great tattoo because the artist wants to do it. You're going to work with the artist. You're like, cool. And then you get a piece and it's amazing. Uh, and you don't have those moments where you're like, I need to cover that up or whatever types of situations might arrive. <laughs> um, but like getting that venture ready, it's like, what are you building? What's the model? Is it a lead gen business? Which is what we first tried to pivot into. And then we started doing thesis around that. And we were like, it's kind of working. The other thing we did, which this term did not exist then, but like creator economy, because we're like, well, artists are pretty cool. Like what if when they're putting out their artwork, they could actually you know, connect to a service that like could print it to canvas. People could acquire the artwork too. So give them a way to like show their work, sell their work, make other revenue streams. We started to kind of test with, it was like a little bit successful, but ultimately when we wanted to go venture, venture, we kept getting resistance here. Cause you know, the data sets of course on the total market size and tattooing is like not great. Uh, Ibis worldwide did some pretty good stuff, but we basically wound up pivoting into building, um, like a full enterprise wrong term, but like enterprise resource planning. So ERP, um, but total SAS, like SAS software to power the tattoo studio. Um, because we learned that was a big thing as we spent more and more time with artists. They're like, I'm an artist. Like, I don't, I don't want to run a PNL, you know, I don't want to do all this stuff for this business. Uh, so we were like, Oh, full pivot. Let's, let's write that code. Uh, and that's what drove us getting investment is like a lot of people are like, okay, that's interesting. It's what's known as a vertically integrated SaaS. So the way that it's like, if you own the whole vertical, you can do really well. Like if you've actually managed to bring together this market. Um, so that's what we went for and it's what made it venture ready. That's why we raised that next like little bit of money. Um, and then ultimately, obviously you were just started like driving at that and building it out. And ultimately you wound down Tattoo Hero and you was it right after this or when did co-venture come into play um what skill set or you know experience at tattoo hero ibm kind of led you to hey i want to start a venture builder studio and what what was co-venture all about yeah so what's fun is co-venture was started by ali hamid uh and jamil gother um a long time ago it's a new york city based venture capital fund uh still operating today uh, they have a lot of different product lines. They have a wonderful credit facility and other cool stuff. But what what happened for us is actually during Tattoo Hero, we went out to raise a seed round. We had built the software. We delivered it to market. We were in like 24 countries and about 200 tattoo studios. Um, but all that had happened over about five months since we released. So since we actually got the product in the market in five months, we got that far. Uh, but we were essentially bankrupt. We had like no money left. And actually our entire team was working for free like saying like, we believe in this. And like, I had been working without a salary for, I think it was like six or eight months at that point. Uh, so, I, you know, the podcast called the hard part. So <laughs> there's the hard part. Um, but we were like, believed in it. So I went out to do this sort of last fundraise. It was like, if I can get the money together, let's do it. So I went out, um, the short story is we didn't succeed. Uh, we got to about $800,000 soft circled. Um, which just means people had committed, but they hadn't like issued the term sheet. And CoVenture was one of the funds that was ready to lead. So they actually had a term sheet. They were like, we're going to lead this. Um, but then through the whole process, we, one, didn't get to the amount of capital we wanted to raise. And then the, us as founders who were obviously pretty tired at this point, like we had serious concerns that if we didn't have that capital, like what the grind would look like and whether we even had a 
real opportunity of success or not without that much capital to hit what we needed to hit. We'd become pretty good operators by this point, <laughs> a little more planning this time. So CoVenture, um, that's where we met. Um, when we wound down Tattoo Hero, of course, because we just, you know, the round didn't come together, all these decision points, we, we chose to say, okay, we got to let this go. Um, basically, CoVenture called me, uh, like, I think it was about a year and a half later, like I wound up doing some consulting, helping out some friends, companies, uh, and now unicorn here called Ascent Compliance. They're now called just Ascent. Uh, I've worked there for a little period of time. And then Ali, the managing director of CoVenture reached out and said, hey, look, like, we're looking for people like engineers and product leaders to build our portfolio companies. And we really liked meeting you when you're running Tattoo Hero. We obviously wanted to write you a check. What are you doing now? And I was like, well, I want to learn venture because I saw that that was a huge thing that I screwed up with Tattoo Hero was like not understanding venture, how the models work, like all this stuff. So it seemed a natural fit for me to be like, yeah, like yeah. let me join this and like help build companies and products. So we, we joined. And so, so you jumped into co-venture, want to learn the venture side of things. What was that experience like? So coming from IBM, massive company, to being a founder, now being on the venture side, did you have an interesting perspective of like knowing the struggles firsthand and also understanding like how a big company would operate? Um, I guess, what was that experience like going into venture with that background? Uh, it was really useful. Um, a lot of what you learn when you get to the edges of technology, which I really still think venture is as much as it's grown as like a huge category. It's still like, I think someone tweeted about this it might've been David Sachs, like the other day from craft was like the Biden administration just approved like a third, $330 billion budget for climate tech. It's like, that's the entire venture spend for last year during like our bubble year. Like it's like, so it's like when you start putting these things in perspective, it's like, it's actually, it's not that much money. It's like, trust me, BlackRock capital has a lot more. So it's just one of those things. So when you get to this edge, um, you really, I love it because you start to surround yourself with these people who are also at the edge and they just see stuff that's happening now and what might happen in the future with a very different perspective. And I found that everybody kind of came in with like a story kind of like mine, like not obviously the exact same backgrounds or anything, but they're all like, it's all like weirdly fractured or the status quo, which was like, you know, I did investment banking on a finance major, yada, yada, like type flow. Um, but those were rare. Like typically like you'd be hanging out with an analyst with that background, like moving to make partner um, or whatever their roadmap was. But like, it was super fun to just be there at this stage where there's all these like very unique thinkers. So my background was really useful because when we'd sit in these you know, whatever with the co-founding team and we're trying to help them navigate where they're going because CoVenture's model was we wrote a check like cash for the team, obviously. Uh, and then we also provided a product and engineering team to build the technology, which is why we back pre-seed and seed. Like pre-seed, I don't even think had a name then. It was just like early rounds. <laughs> like, so we were like, we'll back you. And then I would show up as the VP of product and help the founder shape their product vision. And then with our team, um, which the fun side note here is uh, Carl and Sawmill joined me then, who are my co-founders of Codex. So that's actually how we started working together was at CoVenture. Um, and we just helped them build and ship products. Like I think we wound up shipping, it was like 20 or 30 like portfolio companies in like three-ish years we were there. And you just get this fun thing. So for me, it's like advising, like I could advise like corporate M&A, which was like a really weird thing that like not many people had experience with, but I'd help some of that at the business analytics division and all this stuff. So it was like cool to bring those perspectives. Um, 
and great again to be at the edge because there was like people, you know, who like literally only wrote open source code and they had this very decentralized view before these terms got, you know, as big as they are now for very obvious reasons. With those 20 to 30 products that you shipped, how do you think that's impacted you as, as a co as a founder now? And, you know, what kind of insights did you put together like trends or like patterns of, you know, what makes a successful team? What early signs should we see in a product? Like, I'm sure that time was extremely useful in ideation to creation of something. Yeah, I think like really what you find when you start to see, especially startups in volume is like the, I mean, what do you say? I guess what everyone says is like kind of true. It's really about the team and the individuals. Like it is at that level. Again, this was like pre-seed siege data deals, like early tech building early stuff. And so like I could sum it up as every single one of these companies, it's, it's their entire life's goal was to achieve product market fit, nothing else. So anyone who you'd see certain founding teams, for example, um, you know, we'd get a prototype out, frankly, like, you know, garbage ish tech, but it does what it said it would do. And we're like, it does what it says we'll do. Let's, let's try, let's let try get the market. And a lot of, uh, you know, founders would say, this isn't ready. It doesn't look good enough. Like, don't send this to market. Like, do I couldn't, if I show this to Evan, he'll be like, what are you doing? Like, get out of here. Like, or whatever. They have these like resistances and like, I believed it. I bought that because like working at IBM, like, yeah, like if I deploy something and Toyota sees it and we lose Toyota, like, it's a problem. So like you kind of believe that. And then as I started to ship more and more, it was like, no, that's, that's bullshit, <laughs> frankly, like ship it, like just send the thing, start testing with your customers, like do it, like lose the ego, drop that nonsense, like just get out there and get in market and try to understand what people are saying. So in terms of unifying across, like the founders who had no ego, who are like, I just really want to serve my market. I just want to make their problems go away. That's all I want to do. And I don't care if I do it with a carrier pigeon that triggers a Zapier command, or if I do it with like the most slick piece of software that has AI, it doesn't matter. And like, so those teams I found actually went way further. They always learned way more. It didn't necessarily mean they won, but when you look at like the kind of line chart, it's like you could see more data points and you saw it trending. Sometimes they'd trend and be like, the hypothesis was wrong. And we'd all go, yep. Like we thought it was a great idea. We did all the things and it just, this one just didn't work. Bad timing, whatever it is, just didn't work. But there were the ones that, that hurt the most was like, there were a couple we built that was like really good tech and it never launched because they just never felt it was ready. And I'm like, well, that's a sure way to not succeed. <laughs> so I don't know what else to tell you. It's like, you never release it. I mean, you'll never be made fun of or be told it's bad, but you'll also certainly not get a business out of your hands. It's almost like, you know, I, I played football and if you're not even playing the game, then how do you, how do you get better? How do you know if you won, whatever that means? Yeah, may no be. points on the board. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, so with CoVenture, that experience, seeing that being able to ship 20, 30 different products, when I looked at your background too with Dignified, was that associated with CoVenture? Was that completely separate? What was that experience like? Yeah, uh, so it was separate. Um, basically what had happened was uh, CoVenture, again, 
great, wonderful business. Uh, we had a lot of fun building it, but part of what happens and the beauty of being in an early venture fund too, is like it was iterating and testing new product lines and like trying all sorts of things and co-venture like any venture fund, frankly, their goal is to return capital to their limited partners, like their LP pool and their investors. Um, so while we were there, we helped build and ship like internal products as well. Um, and anyway, what happened is they started to diversify their product lines and certain things were very successful. Uh, so their venture model just became questionable as we got into like larger and larger, what I would call tier one deals. Um, because often a tier one deal doesn't actually require, um, you know, like an engineering team to support them. Um, they'll, you know, typically just be happy with like their friends that they built their last company with or whatever, they'll, they'll get it done. Um, so when we started to see this happening, uh, there was an opportunity for us and this, our team, of course, to stay with CoVenture, uh, but it would have meant moving more into like the internal building or potentially joining one of the portfolio companies. And uh, Carl Sommel and I, we were just interested in continuing to build products together. Uh, so we decided to basically part ways with CoVenture. It was very amicable. Uh, and then we created an agency. Um, and the goal of that was kind of to do the same thing, except be paid for our labor uh, rather than having a fund. Um, so we, you know, secured contracts with lots of people, obviously, like a boutique software agency and built software for them. And whenever we had uh, basically spare time or free time, uh, we would build products that we just wanted to see in the world. Uh, what were some interesting products that you built during that time? Oh, one, one that I loved, uh, was called feathery. Uh, so feathery, uh, I know it doesn't matter. It's off the internet now. Anyway, I don't need to say the domain, <laughs> um, but the purpose here was we saw while supporting a, a major client, uh, that had a very large web presence and, uh, essentially like programmatic SEO mattered to them because they had a crazy number of like back pages in this catalog. Um, we learned a lot of challenges about the modern frameworks and how they don't work well with SEO. Uh, so what I'm talking about is like Angular. So if you think Angular and React, those are two huge engineering front-end frameworks. React's kind of one, I'll say, very much with quotations. Um, but at this time, there was these issues. And essentially, um, when you built a single page application, so an SPA, uh, what those do is like, they're typically a frame that the the user, so like me, if I go to the website is reading, it's just a frame. And then it does API calls in the background to get the data it needs. And then it presents that data. And then as a user, you're like, cool, I'm reading this website. But what happened in this middle ground is when Google search bots actually crawl your website, they'll show up to the website. The website will open and it will show the frame and like the API call is happening in the background, but the Google bot will index that page and leave before the API call actually renders. So what Google will think is that it's an empty dead page. There's nothing here. So what people started to do is what's known as server-side rendering, so SSR. Um, but to break it all down, there were issues with SPAs, which were becoming the prominent way that people were delivering web technology in terms of SEO. So we built Feathery, which was a platform and tool that could just construct server-side rendering for you. All you had to do was connect it to a GitHub repo and point it at the site, and we would handle the whole thing for you with middleware and caching. Uh, and I think it was a it was an elegant product. We did it with like Amazon LightSail and a bunch of other cool technologies at the time. Um, super lightweight, super functional, and uh, it was pretty successful in terms of usage. But like we never really turned it into a business because uh, we were just really busy with contracts. Uh, but that was a really fun one. 
so I guess I'm, I'm starting to see this kind of reoccurring theme of like building early products that are super useful, super interesting, but maybe not all of them cross over to that threshold of being a sustainable business. I guess I'd like to get maybe your point of view there on, you know, what separates the two? What are the signs that you can tell? Like, you know, now with Codex, how can you tell when it's not just a project? It's not just a kind of a cool product you're putting out there, but this can be like a business that I can run and grow a team and ultimately achieve whatever scale that you would want. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, maybe one day I'll be able to actually write this into a real roadmap. Um, but everything is like, I mean, at its core, it's like there's a road and there's milestones and each milestone in my mind now, like seeing what I've seen and building what we've built, like each milestone is something controllable by you and your team. So typically a ship, like you release something, you, you do something, an action has been taken by the business that the world can consume. And that action or object you put out needs to validate or devalidate a hypothesis. And then depending on which way it goes, like, you know, proven or disproven, um, you kind of make a choice and you keep going and you release the next thing. And so in order to take something from this is a cool project that solves a lot of value into, oh, we've got a business. I think the number of milestones in between, it'll change per sector or whatever you're looking at, like agriculture versus like FinTech or something. But like, it's all the same fundamentals where you have to first essentially prove all your theses until you get to the point where you say, we have product market fit. And then when you move on from product market fit, you start to test the hypothesis around growth. And that's, you know, in the early stages, like, can we get any form of traction on this? Like if you have product market fit, you obviously have some by this point. So these things obviously are not linear in nature. They're probably multiple things being run at the same time, but like, ideally you're able to construct these hypotheses. You're able to test against those and like the whole goal in order to build a business is like many of your risk areas have to be covered so it's like not just because the technology work but also is there are we solving a problem that's so pressing that people will literally pay us for it obviously is one of those things so what value are you providing and is that pain or challenge that that user the person you're serving um that they're having that they're willing to obviously be like, yeah, I'll give you this much money to do that job for me. Uh, one of the frameworks we use all the time now is jobs to be done in order to uh, sort of wrap that concept. I'd be interested to get your point of view on, on product market fit, just with your experience of building so many products. I feel like, you know, whether it's conversations I'm having with friends that want to start something, they'll go, okay, well, I built this project and, you know, let's say I've a hundred or a thousand users, which is amazing. But sometimes they'll confuse that with product market fit. I guess, what would be your personal view on what product market fit means for you? Yeah, I mean, my definition of it has really come from some of the greats. Uh, I'd say like um, Raul, uh, the CEO of Superhuman, actually has like a go-to-market engine that he's blogged about and written about. I think like many funds have like reiterated it. I think even Coda has like a version of it. Um, but it all kind of comes back to the same thing. Like you can divide it into a few ways. There's like a little bit of quantitative, but like product market fit is typically qualitative in nature. Cause if you're trying to sense it early enough, 
you're probably going to feel it before you're able to read it and lagging metrics, if, if you know what I mean. Um, so the way that we perceive it is like, you know, I use the number 10. I think it's just a nice number. So it's like, do you have 10 customers that use your product right now that if you sent them an email that said, hey, like I'm going to turn off my service tomorrow. Like, how do you feel about this? They, they need to be like really disappointed. They would have to be like, I don't know how I will do my job. And if they say like, I mean, that's an extreme one to be fair. Like, I don't know how to do my job, but like, if you get 10 accounts to be like, I would know what to do without this technology. If you turn it off tomorrow, you probably have product market fit. I, I love that definition. It's just super clear and super effective there, I guess. So you're at Dignified, you're have this product studio, you're launching things. Some things are going well. Some things are, you know, maybe not reaching that business scale. Does Codex come into play at that point? Are you seeing an issue out there? Is this one of the products that you launched through this product studio? What happened there? Yeah, legitimately. Codex was actually a total scratch your own itch thing. We totally thought it would be an internal tool to our agency. Um, So the initial discovery was fairly simple. Like we just realized that as an agency, so I'll, I'll, I'll describe it from that time. So everybody teleport with me back, back in time. Um, we were like, we're an agency. We write good code and we ship great product. But when we give it to a customer, like one of them, they then have to inherit a code base. They have to call their engineering team and they got to be like, Hey, engineers, we own this new product that we bought some company built and like, they have to be onboarded to it. So it's about like getting into the code base, understanding essentially why it is the way it is. So in engineering, there's like an incredible amount of architecture decisions that get made like at the beginning and throughout a project and its life cycle, the decision log that PMs might've taken, the trade-off decisions. Like there's just so much stuff that happens as to like why something is the way it is uh, that we got really tired of answering because what would happen is we would, in the status quo, we'd finish a project, we'd give it to our client, and then the client would proceed to have their engineers or their senior team that's like adopting or inheriting this project basically call us all the time. So we'd be getting on pair program calls. Uh, we'd just be hopping on like decision log calls and it would be constantly answering this question essentially like, why? Why did you write it that way? Why is the method like that? Like, why this library instead of this library? I don't like MIT licenses. I want this, et cetera, et cetera. And that was like literally costing us money because every call we got on, it would burn down our contribution margin and essentially our profit from the deal because we did not think to, at that time, we weren't, you know, charging people for this sort of service and support because we saw that onboarding part as like part of the package. Like it felt really weird to nickel and dime essentially in that angle. So Codex was this first idea was like, what if we could just leave a record of the choices we made directly on the lines of code themselves? So when someone's in the code base, they can physically like truly see it right there beside the code. Like this is why, um, what would happen? So we made the first version of Codex, which was actually a Chrome prototype, uh, that injected a view into uh, github.com. So that's actually the first, the very, very first version of Codex. That's super cool. Of like that kind of how they say like, like dog fooding your own product there. And I think I might be incorrect, but I think, Slack was TinySpec, which was that video game company, and the messaging 
they actually started using that internally. They started using Slack internally as a team, then ultimately became a product. So that kind of similarity uh, there with something starting internally as your own problem and then noticing where where did that shift then come that, okay, this is a problem for our team. And then now, hey, it's a, this is a problem for all developers. Where did that crossover point happen? Yeah, that, that happened in research. So by this point, Carl Sommel and I together had like deployed, I think it was like 43 products, like across our agency and then the venture studio. And then we obviously have, you know, we each built some companies like earlier uh, than that too. And we just kind of like, it's hard to remember exactly when, but there was just this feeling this one day where we're like, did we make something bigger than we think it is? So we kind of started to play that game of like, essentially, let's just push this out. Like if we kept working on this, like what other ways can we serve engineering organizations with this fundamental technology while also researching, like we were essentially running around going, someone must've done this. It's like somebody, somebody built this, like smarter than us, like whatever. Uh, and we really couldn't find anything for this very specific scenario. Um, so I, in my product kind of mindset was like, well, I just need to start doing research. Uh, so I basically just started booking calls with any engineer that would talk to me. I was like totally open. I was like, I don't care if you've been working for a year, 15 years, like just come hang out and tell me how you like grok a code base. How do you just learn a code base? And essentially we just started to see this huge fragmentation issue. It's like how you do it was very internal to the process of that company usually, or a person, the engineer themselves had a way that they kind of had figured out. And it became pretty clear to us that like, no one had really led the charge on like, this is how you do it with some form of opinion. And, you know, like, like this is the, you know, the way the best teams do it. Like essentially, if you went and looked at actually what used to be the Fang stocks now, I think it's manga or something, but like, when you'd look at them, they had a system that like worked and there was always, because it's engineering and engineering is an art form underlying in nature. It's like, there's always this space for like humans, like, like you can't, be a process process only. Uh, it obviously has to have like pair calls where people hang out and just talk. And like, there's, there's a lot of information sharing there, but we started to see like Codex could just serve a lot of this problem space, uh, really well. And on our thesis was uh, deep collaboration. So what we had also noticed during this research was there's two things. There's like a story and then there's the, the issue with, um, kind of the tools today. So when you are an engineer and you are literally working on a ticket, let's say, so I am currently going to write some code to do a thing. I would like people to leave me alone because I am thinking about it. I've loaded context into my mind. I'm in this, the problem space and I'm actively writing code right now, like lines of it. I already did the architecture, whatever, but I am trying to make this thing work. And what's happening is you're holding just so much context in your head that everyone's kind of aware of it now that if, you know, my, whatever, John walks in the room and taps me on the shoulder, I go, oh, John, why did you bother me? Because I just lost a ton of my state, essentially. So that was like one of the first big problems we saw because a Slack notification can do that to an engineer. So in deep collaboration, it's like, if you can bring the tools you need into the place where you're literally performing the work. So Codex's thesis was let's be in the IDE. So the integrated development environment, um, there should be less noise. And then if there is noise, cause people need to talk, talk to you, how do you make that higher signal to noise ratio? So signal being 
good, valuable information versus noise, like whatever news of the day is. Um, so we really noticed that pattern in the research. And I would highly advise people check out uh, Teresa Torres. She's got an incredible product discovery habits um, sort of system and book. Uh, it's really good for understanding how to run uh, sort of continuous research, uh, which is quite helpful for this. Um, and then the other thing we saw was the status quo. So I would ask people, if you're looking at some lines of code and you go, like, what is this? <laughs> what do you do? Like, how do you figure out what is this? And all of them would do the same thing. They would like literally screenshot the code block, open up Slack, and then like DM a senior staff member or someone that they knew and would literally be like, what is this? And then usually that staff member would be like, I don't know. I didn't write that. Like, I think, I think, you know, John wrote that. And then they'd like DM John. <laughs> and then John's like, dude, I left that team two, two years ago. I'm on the API team. Like, you know, Susan inherited that. And then they'll message Susan. And basically, eventually they find the person. And then the person says, oh, here you go. And they tell them why. Like, this is, this is the why. But then that engineer has this thing, this context in a Slack DM that nobody can get. It's, it's just in their Slack DM and no one can see it. And then they just go, okay, cool. And then they finish their ticket. They do their job. But that thing never leaves the Slack DM. So like literally two hours later, someone else will screenshot the same code block and do the same thing. And it was like madness to me. So we're, we're kind of on a pursuit to just try to solve that. Like if you have the context you need beside the code, because we physically allow you to put it on the lines of code itself. Anyway, it makes these things move faster. And I've never been an engineer myself, so I don't know this firsthand, but I've been at multiple startups where the developer engineer will be complaining about why is the code like this? I don't understand what's going on. So that's that's interesting that the context, you're wanting it to live within the code base. I guess that brings up an interesting point of, you know, that kind of engineering talent that's out there. This seems to be, especially the way you're describing it, a major issue with, you know, time, you know, that losing of the focus and also just, you know, the nature of the tech world that we're in of, you know, scale up startups, new people joining, and you need that context. So I guess, where do you see, do you see this unlocking a lot of engineers, developers time? Like, do you see this being a huge unlock on, on, on time spent on coding within an organization? Yeah, like uh, the intention, and that's like the fun part with Codex is like, we're building a knowledge company. Like we map a knowledge graph essentially, and there is a graph and it's what's held in your employees' minds and like what they do. And in the engineering organization, it's a bit of a magical place to do this because engineers understand systems and systems thinking. And a lot of this kind of digs at that sort of first principle, which is like, maybe you've done these things, but most large companies like at IBM, they actually make you do this test, which is a systems design test where you, everyone pretends to be part of a beer production train. But the short story is, is like someone's the retailer. So they own a store that sells beer to a person. Someone's the wholesaler, someone's the distributor, and then someone's the like maker, like the physical beer manufacturer. But what you find out is like, when people optimize for what they have to do, it actually breaks the system. And so this experiment that you run and you learn about in systems thinking is like, sometimes the retailers got to like, take it on the chin and still order beer, even though their beer is like full 
because otherwise it stops downstream production so that later, like there's a huge break in the system. So engineering, they fundamentally understand this. So having access to the knowledge and understanding where the graph is and who possesses what the knowledge is allows them to traverse it faster and get the information they need in order to build like very stable systems because you can better understand how all the individual components are interacting with each other. What are they doing? Like, like there's so much there, which this is essentially where this massive world of just documentation exists. Um, and the hard part about Codex is we work really hard to tell and try to instruct people that it's like, it, it kind of looks like docs, but that's because forever we've had a box and we go, that's documentation. And we, we put things in that, yep, documentation. But like Codex is like kind of traversing a bit that ground of like what's docs and then what's context. And context can serve you in a very powerful way if it's delivered appropriately at the right time in the right place. So it's sort of like just in time context in your actual editor itself while you're performing the work. Um, so that's why we, anyway, like went after it from that direction. That's like totally our unique insight. It's, we believe that that's where it serves best uh, instead of like a wiki. Um, I still fundamentally believe in documentation and docs and engineering for a large number of things, which would take a long time to discuss, but um, you know, we live alongside it essentially. So living within that code base, I guess, what were some challenges early days? Was, was it, uh, you know, from a coding standpoint, was it easy to implement this? Like what kind of feedback were you looking for? Were, just because you were using the product yourself, were you able to develop it in a way that was easy to use? It was uh, easy to build, I guess. How complex is this? Because, you know, again, I'm not an engineer by background, but with a different languages you know each company has their own you know stack in terms of what they've previously built so how easy is this to integrate and was that super important to focus on yeah integration was crazy important um it comes back to the same thing around first principles so what we did is we made the product as agnostic as possible so the way codex works is like it doesn't care what language you're using because that's irrelevant like if you're writing in a ruby python c like it does not matter so what we did is we instead used the underlying technology that the vast majority of companies use, which is Git itself. Um, and Git, um, maybe you're familiar with it, but for those who aren't, it's essentially a source control technology. Um, so the easiest way to think of it is you have a Google Doc where you wrote a project, and if someone adds a paragraph, you're able to go back to your audit history in Google Doc and see what it used to look like and who added what. That's what Git does. It's like, this is the main branch, engineer over here makes a branch and writes new code. And then they try to merge it to the main branch and Git handles that. And companies, very large ones like GitHub and GitLab are just a way to store your Git and your source control in a remote, so in the cloud. And obviously that's amazing because then engineers anywhere in the world can access it and work together collaboratively. So that's like the vote, very simple way to, to describe Git and how it functions. So Codex in terms of where we came at, we said, well, we need to live in Git. So what we do is we actually exist in Git. And the hard part about the technology was extending Git and how it functions. Cause it, it has an incredible amount of tooling. Like I think there's like over 218 or something functions of just Git, the open source technology, but Codex had to sort of extend it because the way that Git works is it does insertion and deletion. So it'll tell you if you wrote new lines of code or removed lines of code. 
it won't tell you if you transformed parts of it. It'll store it in the diff when you push it up and stuff. But what Codex does is it watches all of this um, and like basically is able to make sure that when you, let's say, highlight lines four to five and you write context, even if that file changes, like if I add like, let's say like 70 lines of code above it, we can still track it. So the annotation doesn't get lost. And that was a very difficult part of engineering because we do it in a way where we don't actually know the underlying source so that it's a trustful environment. Um, we don't track or store or move source code uh, right now. Um, there's future functionality I'm sure we'll want to give to consumers, which they'll opt to do that because then we can do some pretty cool stuff. Uh, but right now it, it operates uh, in a nearly fully local environment. And what, what would be important context for an engineer to have? Is it just as simple as, a, you know, if I edit a Google Doc and, hey, you missed this punctuation or this here? Like, I guess, where, what what does context look like? Is it just a cheeky little sentence or like, hey, I wrote it this way? Or is it actually like going into detail of the whole reason why you did it that way? Yeah, I mean, our our users and customers and stuff do a lot of different things. Um, you know, typically it derives from various ways. Like one way that a lot of people enter context into Codex is they get a lot of DMs. Like just literally a staff or a senior engineer will get a lot of DMs and people are like, hey, I'm in the controller. Like, what is this again? And then they're like, all right. And then they go and they add context and they just sort of describe it once. And then it's like, if anyone asks questions, like Codex is cool because we also have deep links to code. So like you can literally highlight, like get a link and then send it to them. And when they click it, it'll open their IDE, like literally in the file at the line of code. <laughs> and it's like, here's the line of code. Here's the context. And you're like, oh, okay. So when you keep getting that question, they're just like, here's the link. Like I wrote it, like drop a comment if you have more questions. Cause then it kind of, it moves the convo at a DMS and into codex. So it can be stored. And of course that's accessible. Um, but typically it is the why of code. Cause the biggest thing that we heard obviously is you, you release something to engineers who are the greatest market because they will tell you if they hate it, they will definitely tell you if they hate it. And that's the best. There's none of this, you know, nice. And they say that won't help me. This sucks. <laughs> and you're like, okay, cool. What's up? Um, so the, the wonderful part about this market is like a lot of engineers were like, well, I can just write comments because this is the way that most people do is you type slash slash or whatever the pattern is. And you type a comment like physically in the file where Codex is moving it to the side because we're turning it a comment into an object because that you can do a lot with that. Like that's the point. Um, but it, that's a huge status quo disruption. So some engineers are like, no, I'm just going to keep writing comments. And like, that's fine with me. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why, you know, I'll tell you that's not, but there are, again, like everything, it's like comments serve a purpose in certain ways that I too, truly believe they do. And that's usually when you're describing exactly what the code's doing, you know, where a trace might be or something, but like, that's cool. So dominantly what people put in Codex is the why of code, because you're not going to be able to learn that by just reading the code. Cause you know, Toby, he's gone back on this now, but the CEO of well, I guess he's the president. I don't know what his title is anymore, but he runs, he runs Shopify's short story. But like he famously said, like people should be able to read code and know what it's doing. Like if you write elegant, good code, you can read it and go, okay, well, this is what it's doing. And for sure that's true. And that's a syntax problem if not. Um, but like the why it's like, that's the decision-making. It's like, why did the PM decide that you should implement this using like an outsource or like a, you know, let's say a open source library. 
So I've implemented a piece of technology. I'm leveraging an open source library, which means I've introduced a new like, you know, node package manager dependency into my whole stack tree. So like, I've got an issue now, like you've got a new package that you just shoved in here. Why? And so often people will highlight and be like, Hey, the PM said that, like, you know, I'm going to make stuff up, but it's like, like, you know, general motors wants this product like next week. Like I don't have time to make bespoke technology. So we're using, we're leveraging this like library right now, this open source library, um, to power this and to deploy it to our customer like today. And then in codex, you can like leave a note that's like literally tech dead. And then you can say, we're going to fix that later. Like, we're just going to use that right now because it works. It's working. <laughs> but like, this is why <laughs> there's like, so before, you know, 42 more engineers show up and go like, this is crappy code. It's like, you're right. Like you're literally like, you're right. <laughs> but I had a time constraint and everyone goes, oh, okay, cool. So it, it, anyway, it, it, I could go on this forever. So I'll stop, but it's very fun. And there's an interesting point you bring up with, you know, creating dev tools and, you know, if it's shit, they're going to tell you that it is right away. I guess, what are some, you know, you built a few products now. Um, wh what are some things that you think can make you successful in that space? Is it just transparency? This is why we're building it. This is why it has to be like critically useful for them, even more so than any other industry that you're building in, whether fintech, consumer, whatever. Uh, what are some like little nuances that make that dev tool, dev tech space, uh, you can call it harder, but is it just different? Yeah, diff different and hard. Uh, they they both exist at the same time in the space. Like I have, I have helped, I think only one company in the dev tools before, um, like before starting one, <laughs> like, so through that experience, we didn't really deliver dev tools at the, the company like CoVenture or even uh, Dignified. So the biggest nuance um, for me is again, it's, it's that the engineer themselves, like they are a very open and honest and highly intellectual group. And I'm like, I'm not trying to just be like, Oh, like throw nice words at them. It's just like, you literally have to learn a lot of stuff to be an engineer. So like you can bet that they know when you say stack trace and if they don't, maybe they're just a junior engineer and they're just, they haven't done stack traces yet or whatever, but it's like, essentially there's this level of knowledge. Um, so with that comes this sort of very challenging kind of flip where it's like, if you aren't giving them, I'm going to use the number 10 X, but like, if they're not getting 10 X value, they probably don't care. And like, I really truly mean it here. <laughs> Cause like, you've probably looked around, you know what I mean? Like there's loyalty reward programs. There's all these other products you can get. And like, if you have like a good design and it's like, God, like, I don't know, like Snoop Dogg's back in it. It's like, sure. I'll grab that. Like, I love Snoop. Like I'm in, even though it's like, my life got like two X better an engineer. They'll just be like, I could write this code. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I don't like, no, I don't need that. Like, and you're like, okay. So that's certainly one. Um, the other one coming way back to the start of our conversation about commercialization, like how is a business, a business rather than just a good idea. Um, one of them is like literally the go to market to accessing engineers is one of the more uniquely challenging, um, but uniquely rewarding. Uh, places to try to bring a product to market because engineers have all the tools they need. They can write the software if they don't have the tools they need to basically not let you annoy them with cold outreach. So they're not on LinkedIn if they don't want to be there. Like I've literally had friends delete their LinkedIn because they get too many recruiter emails. 
Like they're like, it's annoying. <laughs> so they delete it. <laughs> and you're like, okay, you go to Facebook and try to sell them an ad. No, man, they're using Brave browser with ad blocking. Like they ain't seeing any of your ads. Like it's, so you start to like kind of learn this and you're like, well, how do you get to engineers? Like, how do you go talk to them on the internet? And it's like, well, one is maybe Twitter because they are typically j jamming, um, but they're also blocking their time because they're busy. So they're like, not going to just hang out with you. So this becomes the real challenge. It's like, how do you get to them in a way that they're like, going to want to respond to you. And it's kind of funny mm -hmm. because it sort of turns into the field of dreams joke, like build it and they will come. It's like, that's never true. I want to be very clear. Don't do that. But at the same time with engineering tooling, like you kind of have to make something good. And then when you show them, if you manage to get to a couple of them and they actually like it, they will tell their friends. And that's the unique joy you can have in this market is when you make something of value, it's like, it'll rip through the community. It's so cool to see. Like, that's why we saw like, obviously GitHub Copilot was built by GitHub, like one of the most used engineering companies in the world. Um, but like, there's a lot of opinions out there. It's very polarized, but it's like it, people used it like, and they, they went quickly and they'll, they'll talk all about it. And anyway, there's a lot of case for that and those types of tools like Heroku and many of these other uh, sort of important pieces of technology. Like uh, throughout our conversation here, you're seeing like, you know, you're seeing all these companies now trying to do no code yep. or low code solutions. You're trying, you know, developers salaries are ever increasing. Yep. Uh, you know, every company is now a tech company. Yep. I guess, you know, with creating a dev tool that's going to help onboarding, create more context, speed up the, the, the cadence of, you know, development, which ultimately leads to better products, more products. How does that kind of feel like, is that like a tailwind behind the business of the sense of, you know, speeding up an individual developer engineer's time will just unlock this tremendous gain for the whole industry? Yeah. Like, let, let me, let me get on a horse that I rode into like our fundraising conversations for a second. Like, I'm sorry for this, but like, it's like literally don the armor, hop on it. I'm going to get crazy in the least Canadian I've been <laughs> like in my life. Um, I have a fundamental belief. If we can accelerate the rate at which software is built, I like to say good software, but let's just say software. Um, we can increase the GDP of a country. It's just that simple. Like there are so few double digit growth categories. And as we look out the window at like a looming recession, this is obviously a rich thing to say on this podcast right now, but like at the end of the day, what you just said, I think is fundamentally true. Like every company is a tech company. And if you're not right now, you're probably behind. So figure it out. Uh, every technology company is also kind of being consumed by open source right now, which is like a whole other thing to get into at some point, but like very interesting. And so if you can't drive technology forward, or if we can't find a way to help engineers better, you know, get together, ship code, like, and basically deploy faster, like iterations is the path to discovering the hypothesis that's the most successful. And then obviously growing, like if we can increase that rate and increase how fast software is created and, and moving, it's like it genuinely will roll all the way up to affecting GDP. Like it's just, it's that simple. And so if we can be one of the capitalist companies that make that happen, obviously that's an incredible position to be in and like a big responsibility. So it's anyway, it's, it's like a duality. Like I deal with trying to achieve a vision quite as big as that, which seems a little absurd. Um, but then also making sure that every day we just build a product that people like using, like it's, it's kind of the, the challenge. That's the hard part. 
after hearing that pitch, uh, I'm not surprised that you got into Y Combinator. Um, but what was that experience like for you? Like we've had, uh, I've had some other people on this season that have gone through that experience as Canadians. What was the experience like particularly for you? For us, I mean, I'd say probably very similar to a lot of the fully remote batches. Um, very cool experience. It's amazing to be a part of the YC community. Like they are, they are there for you. You ask for help, they'll help you. If the partners themselves somehow can't do it, which like, I'm going to say like 5% of cases, the partners like can't find time or whatever on your timeline, whatever it is, like the community will. Like you drop a note, someone's going to call you. Like you need to get a hold of somebody. As long as you have a reasonable ask, like don't run around saying, can I pick your brain? Uh, you, you know, that that's not helping. But if you're like, you know, I don't know, like, for example, I see this all the time. Like someone's like, I'm implementing XYZ with Stripe and I'm having XYZ challenge. And like a co-founder from Stripe's like, yo, this is how you do that. <laughs> and you're like, cool. Like, it's just like, that's the community. Like they're just there, they're listening, they're paying attention um, because of the signal that is Y Combinator yeah. too. Much to my comment earlier about engineering, like, you know, it's a high signal area. So we all go to it. Like we're all really busy. Like my phone blows up and I ignore a lot. And like, there's tons of inbound messages. I think I got like 10 inbounds from random investors just trying to see like, how's Codex doing? And it's like, I'm building product right now. Like, I don't, I, please, like, please, like, thank you, but please. And so, but yet every day I get the email from Y Combinator. I read that. I read it every day. <laughs> it's like, what's up? What are people doing? Can I help? And like that as a Canadian, that was like finding nirvana like because finding a community here of makers where like i'm sorry for the statement but the reality is you need people at your level in order to get better and then usually people like i like using threes so like three years ahead of you and i mean that in like your business's progress you might be able to move your business three years in in six months but it's like if they're doing like you know 10 million annual recurring and you're doing like zero and you're like hey how do i get there they'll reach their hand down the ladder and they will help you. And it is so hard to find that in Canada because we're still too busy pointing at each other and like being very protective of what we know, protective of our network. We all, um, on a, on a whole is very much generalization, which is like super unkind, but like, there's still this like strange, I'd call it like a knowledge monopoly. It's something I've wanted to write about for a while, but like, we think that what we know is what makes us important and desirable. But if you go down to San Francisco and you hang with YC crew, like literally somebody I like cheers to glass with at an event was like, Oh, I can make like five customer intros for you. And you're like, I don't even know you. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Like the, your one minute pitch, like my four friends need that. And you're like, Oh, okay. And they're like texting their friend. Like it's just happening. Like they, they're very positive. Some there's a big belief that there's enough wealth in the world. There's enough business. There's enough stuff going on that like it, it's, it, it's irrelevant. Um, yet for some reason, um, a lot of the time in Canada, like I see a very different viewpoint and it's, uh, it's just challenging. So that was a huge driver being a part of YC. And then the end all to be all is they also are like constantly, like every single week, they're like, what's your number? And did you move it? So like the amount of focus on like growth and like, is it happening is like, I don't know. It's like a pressure cooker, I guess. It's the instant pot of companies. It's going to be the worst comment I ever make. I, I love that, like the power of community there. And also 
I recorded an episode last week with Brandon from Power. It's like a healthcare marketplace. And he's originally from Toronto and moved to San Francisco. And I had asked him, what, like, what makes San Francisco so much better than, you know, Toronto, any other city? And it was a really interesting view of the sense of everyone in San Francisco Bay Area is moving toward, like, everything is consumed by technology. Whether you're an investment banking engineer, whatever that may be, you're obsessed with technology. Everyone's in that space versus, let's say, you go to Vancouver where everyone's a realtor or a real estate developer or a Calgary, Toronto, whatever that may be. So I think that's an interesting and kind of aligns with your thesis there of like that community and that aspect and everyone's looking to help and is all consumed by technology. Yeah. No, I mean, like, and that's the thing, like we're building a, a remote company. Like we're remote, everyone happens to be in Canada. Like we just found the talent here. Like we were hiring North America um, because we didn't want to get too crazy on our time zones, um, which is the only reason we didn't look globally. And like, it's great. And I think you can build enduring, amazing businesses fully remote, uh, but finding that community is important. And YC kind of took it during the pandemic and they said, fine, we won't be tied to a geography anymore. Let's try and do it on the internet. And they essentially stuck it on the internet. And now I know like 40 founders in India. So I look forward to my next trip. It's going to be great. I'm going to go hang out with them. Like you can build a company anywhere. And obviously, but what you're saying is totally true. The network effect of a bunch of smart people in a area all thinking about the same thing and trying to help each other is crazy. And San Francisco used to very much command that from like, you know, it may still, I, I don't have, you know, the right data on this, but like, it certainly did have a bit of an exodus over the pandemic and so on. And we're of course seeing amazing businesses be built fully remote. Um, and that is a debate I will not <laughs> get into, uh, you know, remote versus in office or whatever versus hybrid. Um, but I believe that these things are just fundamental shifts. So YC provides that community. They do it digitally. Um, they certainly, there's some parts of it that were, you know, great about being in person, but now that, uh, the pandemic is in a better place. They they are starting to do some of that in person. So we're actually going down next week to go meet a few people in person and like hang out, which is like going to be really fun. Yeah. So I look, I look forward to getting that opportunity. Um, whereas before, yeah, you used to literally fly down there and go into the office and stuff like that and like grind with the crew. Uh, but it was pretty unique to be a part of a batch that had like, I think we had 377 companies in ours, which was like fun. Yeah. I, that's just, I think that aspect of community is just so powerful, right? Like with like Brandon's comment, your comment about Y Combinator, also finding that community within Canada and that just helps people unlock a new level, right? Everyone's on the same level. I really like that analogy brought of, you know, someone's on, has to be on the same level as you for you to like move ahead. So I like that focus and, you know, I hope that community in Canada can further develop as well. So and I think, I mean, people are trying, so that's, that's what matters. I mean, you're doing it with this podcast. You'll I'm sure talk to lots of people from everywhere, but like we can start to build these things and support and like, I don't know if, if you're out there building a company and you're listening to this, like help someone, <laughs> like just, just do it. Like it's great. Like it doesn't cost you anything. In fact, your investors like you more if you send them deal flow, even if you don't know if it's good, they're still just going to be happy. So it's like, there's just no point to blocking it. But anyway, I'll, get off this horse now i should dismount i love it um i guess we could uh get wrapped up with the kind of quick fire round here so first question what is the best book you have read or even one that's maybe on the bookshelf that you're looking to crack into oh boy all right 
First, best book I've read uh, in terms of transformation for my life is Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. Read that book. And if you don't read that book, you are doing yourself a ridiculous disservice because Dr. Dweck defines the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, and then literally helps you figure out how to shift into a growth mindset. And I'm telling you right now, if at any point in your life, you looked at something when I can't do that because I'm not an artist, you have a fixed mindset and you need to change it because everything is learnable. Like I literally am a high school dropout. Now I'm running a technology company. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> like, try it. And the fascination for me is I have a fixed mindset all the time. And it's just by different segments of my life. So like, I forever was like, I'll never be good at that. And then slowly but surely you realize it's like, no, you just need to break it down, find a thing and learn it. So that was the most personally transformative in terms of like, I'd say like achieving the growth that I wanted in a personal and a professional uh, context. She has a whole section on parenting, by the way, if that's a thing for people. Uh, it's good, it seems. I'm not a parent, so I don't know. But like, uh, there's a lot to this book. Just read this book. And then the other one uh, that was the most personally transformative uh, from a very like personal internal place is there's a great book called Running on Empty. Um, and what it is, is it's, I think it technically is a self-help, um, but it's this amazing work by another doctor. Uh, I forget their actual name right now, which is rough, but it's called Running on Empty. And it's basically how... Our parents, through no desire, make mistakes and essentially leave children emotionally neglected. And it's freaky in the way that emotional neglect is like not a thing you can point at and be like, I remember this moment where this happened and like that sucks. It's all the stuff that just didn't happen. And all those things construct a lot of like how you navigate and deal with the world and why you may or may not be a certain way. So for example, people who lack self-discipline, it's typically because they actually had neglect because their parent never held them accountable. And that could be for a thousand reasons. Like they were working three jobs trying to make sure you had food. Like it's not their fault. And I want to be very clear about this because a lot of friends that I say, you should read this. They go like, I love my parents. I'm like, I'm not blaming your parents. <laughs> like It's like, but anyway, it was uh, very transformational for me to help understand like why I think the way I think, why I do what I do and like things like that. Like self-discipline was one of those, like figuring out how to, you know, get certain things in, in order, uh, you know, cause I did, you know, anyway, we'll get into a bunch of reasons, but there's a lot of reasons as to why. So that's an excellent, excellent book. Perfect. I, I I'll add those to my Amazon list. Uh, number two, what are you most excited about this year, whether it's personal or work related? That's good. Um, honestly, like work related our, our go to market. We, we actually, um, codex is super cool. We're having a lot of fun. Um, but we saw this massive problem that our customers kept telling us about. So we built a whole new product with the team in like a month uh, called Code Owners. So you can go to codeowners.com and check it out. Uh, but basically we created a fully automated way to troll the PR and like GitHub graph and stuff and identify who is a code owner of a file or a code base area and then automatically construct, it's literally called the code owner file that lives in GitHub or GitLab. Um, that has that data and then it also keeps it up to date. So we listen and have intelligence around every time there's a pull request or merge request, depending on which lingo you're doing. But basically when a diff is pushed against your code, you listen and then we automatically update 
that uh, code owner file over time. So as people change, as people write new code, we're able to basically say like, oh, like, you know, Evan's actually the the person who would understand this the best. And in the next like couple of days, we're going to release the team's version of it as well. So right now it like knows the humans, uh, but also we're integrating with GitHub. So it'll be able to say like, you know, the API team or whatever your team structure is on certain areas of code. Uh, and it's just a really cool way to serve organizations because sometimes when they start using Codex, they go, this is amazing, but like, it just takes time because I have to write it. Like I, I have to write all this context. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. So we were like, well, how do we make it easier and faster for engineers? And we're like, oh, we'll just automatically identify who knows the most. So when you look at the file, you're like, oh, I just got to call John. <laughs> and then you call John. Cool. So anyway, I'm, I'm really excited about that, that piece of technology. That's super cool. I'll have to check that out. Uh, final question. Um, you've been a founder a few times, been an investor. How do you deal with hard times of being a founder? What are some, you know, we were talking about the grouse grind before this, but uh, is walking around Stanley Park, how you decompress? Like, what are ways that help you get to the place you need to be to be the best self you can? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I have a ridiculous number of things I've tried. If anyone wants to tweet me about random other ones, for sure, uh, I will answer with, I guess, what works the most. Um, and it's kind of funny because there's a tension in that one, but it's physical activity. Beyond a reasonable doubt, it is physical activity. Like, if I'm doing it right, I actually went to the gym. And I picked up something heavy and I put it down a lot of times. <laughs> like that is the best, <laughs> like squat day, leg day, push day, pull day, whatever. Um, but uh, like second to that is definitely walks with my dog in Stanley Park. So like the woods, the forests for me have always been like my thing, like in terms of going into nature, which is why I, like I love hiking and being in the mountains and everything. But yeah, like getting out, getting some activity, moving my body in some way that's regenerative. And then like, Honestly, I got like intense with like the, if, if you use an iPhone, they have all the do not disturb settings now. So I have like an absurd number of them with very precise <laughs> changes. So it's like, I literally activate personal mode, do not disturb. And I go on a walk and it's like, it's kind of like what I was talking about engineering before. It's like, don't notify me. Don't talk to me. Like, I think like four numbers ring. <laughs> on on personal mode and it's like my co-founders and then like my loved ones <laughs> like that's it so that that really helps too is just space um unless what's happening is i'm being basically a real shithead to myself which happens all the time i'm sure we've all done these down spirals you know when you sit on the couch to play a video game and then your brain's like you should be working right now and you're like it's seven o'clock at night brain leave me alone like when those happen i don't go <laughs> out <laughs> into the woods by myself because it'll I'll probably just keep thinking bad thoughts uh, I typically, uh, the tool is like, um, meditation. So first of all, to interrupt the pattern, interrupt the like negative thinking, get rid of that. Uh, you can even just do like five minutes really quick. Uh, I think Huberman lab has a really cool one now where he talks about focus meditation. It's like 13 minutes. Um, you can check that out, but like a little bit of meditation and then there's a choice. It's like, I get on a phone call with someone I really trust, like a trusted advisor, like my brother or something like that. And I talk it through, um, so that's, that's the best way to get like out of my head. And the other one, it's like, I want to get in my head for like peace. But if I'm in a place where it's me beating me up, I got to go the other way. I love those two different strategies there. And like really knowing, like kind of mastering like the emotion that you're feeling and then understanding the best path forward. So I love that. Brandon, it's been a great conversation. Yeah, it's fun. I've learned so much. It's been a ton of fun. And I'm so appreciative of your time sharing Codex, your background 
and sharing your time with me today. Absolutely. This is a blast. Thanks for the, uh, you know, the work up front. It was fun to dig into <laughs> like a decade of startups, which now feels really weird to say, and I'm bald. So we're totally, we're totally there now. <laughs> we're on the downhill. <laughs> Brandon, it's been so much fun. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Check out the podcast description for my social and website links to stay up to date with all future episodes.